All right, y'all, we are back for another episode, and today I'm really excited. I think I say that every single episode. I just love being able to do this, but today is special on the podcast because we have our first autistic adult who's going to be willing to share his personal experiences, and then this is even more top-notch because he is a therapist himself. So Sam Marion is a licensed clinical social worker and not only like I said, is autistic and also works with autistic children, teens, and adults and is a neurodiversity affirming therapist himself. So we connected through Instagram and I'm just excited and eager to be able to hear different perspectives. We're also going to touch on today a little bit more on supports for teens and moving into adulthood. This is not my area of expertise, so I want to make sure we touch on that for a couple reasons. One, you might be a parent that has a child in those age ranges, or even just for you to be able to think ahead and continue to have this as a resource. Welcome to a parenting space actually designed for you, where you can get answers about navigating a life that includes autism. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental coach specializing in neurodivergent affirming care. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. And I know firsthand the impact autism can have. I was 12 years old when my little brother was diagnosed and my family had to learn how to navigate the autism journey. It wasn't always easy. Two decades later, I now create resources and services I wish my family had, including this podcast. And I developed the whole family approach. On this podcast, of course, we will talk about autism, but we will also talk about your personal growth and well being as a parent, supporting your non autistic children, and sharing personal stories of other families so you know you're not alone. Quick disclaimer before we jump into today's episode. Anything shared on this podcast should not be considered clinical advice, and you should consult with your team of medical, mental health, and developmental providers if you need support. So welcome, Sam. So glad to have you here today. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. Absolutely. I know I just did an introduction, but tell us a little bit more about yourself and also how you got into this field. At this point, I'm in private practice. I work by myself, and I generally say that I work at the intersection of neurodivergence and trauma. My background is in actually as a trauma therapist out of graduate school. I graduated with my master's in social work on a Friday. And on Monday morning, I started in a women's substance abuse treatment program, which had a parallel trauma treatment program with it, really looking at the underlying causes or drivers of addiction being traumas. And so my career started off in women's trauma, I even managed an inpatient women's trauma unit. That was the space I was in. And after several years there, I launched my first private practice, which was a big pivot for me. I actually thought my career path was hospital administration. There's a bit of a family history of that, but I pivoted and said, no, direct care is for me. I like working with people. I don't like spreadsheets. And so I launched a private practice with a friend of mine in a small town where I grew up in South Georgia and had all these aspirations of these amazing things that I was going to do and started marketing and realizing that in fact, I was in a town that had no resources. I found out day one that I was and my partner, we were the only two full-time therapists in our community. So we served everybody. Wow. There wasn't this like, I'm going to specialize in trauma because that's my training. It was, I have to learn how to work with whoever comes to the door or I have to tell them to drive an hour away. Maybe we can find somebody 30 minutes away. I hope they have the resources to go out of town. And then honestly, small town, Southwest Georgia, the financial resources are not there for most people to drive 
50 miles to find a therapist. So dove into a lot of play therapy training. I'm somebody who loves training and my business part of the time, we got competitive who was going to get the most training almost. And so truly worked with kids with all kinds of presentations, worked with teenagers, adults. I think at one point in time, my caseload age ranged from five to 88. If I say, no, I can't work with you, then hopefully they can take half a day off to go out of town. And so did that, rocked along until the pandemic hit, moved from South Georgia up to North Georgia, where I'm now in Buford, North Atlanta. I actually took a job with the state of Georgia as basically the trauma therapist for public safety statewide, which is an interesting shift because I didn't think I was ever going to work for a big organization again. I don't play well with others, I like to say. Now I understand more of that. Right along as I was leaving that, I lost my practice here a little over a year ago is when autism was really hitting my radar. I tell people that there's someone who I care deeply about, a child. I started seeing this child, I think they're autistic. And I decided I'm going to learn everything I can about autism. That's the best way I can love this child. I realize now that's a really common thing for late identified autistic adults to do is we make autism our special interest for a bit, right? Before we identify and then afterwards. Weirdly in here, I decided, you know, it's good. I believe in therapy. I'm going to get back with a therapist. It's been a minute. Somehow ended up with a neurodivergent therapist who was neurodivergent affirming and it was wonderful. And so for me, as I was walking through this, like I'm reading about autism from every angle and this just feels really, really familiar for me. I'm processing with my therapist who's kind of beating me rope and just giving me space and affirming along the way. So it was a really interesting process for me as I identified. One day I finally looked at her, I'm like, I'm autistic, right? She's going, mm-hmm. yes, you are. <laughs> How long Go ago ahead. was that? So this was probably maybe September of last year, okay. not quite a year ago okay. that I was finally like, all right, this is real. And as I understood autistic masking and how come that is amongst adults, I started looking around my own caseload, which is a weird thing because I had been marketing myself as a trauma therapist. And I started recognizing, hold on a second. Most of my clients are neurodivergent. A ton of ADHD adults. I had autistic adults already showing up in my office, somehow clicking. If you'd read my profile online, even my website today is not the best at like drawing in neurodiversity and ADHD and autism, but they were finding their way into my office at rates that other people that I know and therapists, they're not seeing that. So I couldn't quite put my finger on what that is, but I think just in our dialogue, something would click. And so more and more, I kept learning about myself. And like I said, autism was my special interest and it sort of remains that way. So that's kind of my story. And it's just gone more and more. And I'll say this, as I looked around, because this is a theme that I hear from you is there's a lack of professionals who really understand this topic. Right. And so it made me go, well, if no one else is going to do it, I guess I'm going to dive into helping other people learn and, and I will need to learn more and more. That's sort of been my path over the last year, just getting deeper and deeper into this world. That's so cool to hear. There's such a need and such a gap in care. I've never heard that before about a lot of late identified autistic individuals end up having autism as their special interests. And it makes so much sense. It's a way to become like, not only you have the lived experience, but an expert too on the topic in terms of learning the nuances and ins and outs, because how my perspective is, and you know this probably from listening to my podcasts, absolutely, we need to be listening to self-advocates and 
what those living with autism have experienced. And we also know there's so much heterogeneity. Every individual is so different. And so I think it's so cool you having your own lived experiences and then also studying it and really focusing on how do I support all the other really neurodivergent individuals, not even mm -hmm. just autistic individuals that you are working with. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge to face all the differences amongst neurodiversity, all the different experiences. And so looking at through that angle, when we talk about neurodivergence, we talk so much about sensory experiences for ADHD, autism, all these different identifications. And so when we have that lens, we can look at everybody. You work a lot with parents and families. And so I talk about with parents today, I was having a conversation about sensory experiences of their child, but saying, as you're noticing that, notice yourself too. Notice how much more settled you feel when y'all adjust the sensory experiences within your home and the projection amongst everybody. There's not necessarily this fine line of either you have sensory challenges or you don't. It's all a spectrum. And right. so helping people walk through that is really interesting. Absolutely. The more parents are doing it themselves, they're modeling too what they're working with their child on trying to integrate, which is a really effective way to teach and to experience it too as a family together is going to help everyone become more regulated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit about masking and your personal experiences with that. What is that experience like for you? And what were some of the things as you expanded your knowledge, you started to identify as autistic that then you were like, oh, these are ways that I was masking. So generally the idea of autistic masking for those who may not know, right, it is, it's the effort to appear neuronormative, neurotypical. It's try to blend in and appear like everybody else, which is not just an autistic experience. It is the experience of what every middle school or high schooler in the world, we just want to blend in and fit in with others. But autistic people take it to the next level in many ways, studying how do other people do things. I knew somebody who proposed to somebody or asked them to prom leaning up against a locker in the way exactly like a movie scene would have been. Like, this is what you do. And so they saw it in the movie, they played it out. When I present on the topic, I always tell the embarrassing example of when I was in high school, I had my first job and it was just not going well. And I didn't know how to resign or quit from a job other than there's that scene at Top Gun when Cougar hangs up his wings. And I'm pretty sure I try to channel the same energy but that's the only model I had. And so masking is replicating what we see and as an effort to try to blend in and be like what we think is normal or expected of us. It's repeating movie lines, TV lines, repeating a joke I heard somebody else say, I'm going to repeat it. And oftentimes it's not in the right timing. It doesn't land quite right, but we don't quite understand why not. Because when Joe told the joke, it worked. When I told the joke, I got funny looks and I don't know why. So it's an interesting experience. And when you start realizing, wait, I've been masking, there's this other true self inside of me. And I have a lot of clients who they're reprocessing their life at such a fast rate because they're walking back through things. As we're recording July 4th this next week, as with every client I'm talking about, hey, fireworks coming up. And some people are, yeah, yeah, I've got my plan. You know, I'll be under the covers with headphones on all night that night. And one person said to me, fireworks have never been a big problem. And then they paused. I've never listened to fireworks without a mask on before. And so it's just like pushing yourself through these sensory experiences at times 
because other people are enjoying this, so I should enjoy it rather than saying, you know what, I'm really overstimulated right now. And so there's a lot of experiences that happen as a mask comes off and you start looking at situations going, oh, that's what happened. That's why things did not go as planned because I was not my authentic self. I was role-playing what I thought I was supposed to be, but I didn't quite understand all the nuance. I just want to reflect something really interesting that I'm experiencing right now is, and I want to put this example out to parents too, because I just love everything that you said, is this idea of the importance of learning from the autistic community, autistic individuals themselves. I will say I'm going to totally own, and it's making me feel a little vulnerable right now. I haven't been thinking about talking about 4th of July with the families I'm working with. And so we all, as therapists, bring our own unique perspective, but it makes so much sense. You're like, I've had this experience. Let me share this. It's great if you can work with a neurodivergent therapist, like they are neurodivergent themselves. I don't think it's a thousand percent necessary as long as they're open and willing to learn. But this is the perfect example of why we need to have some of that input coming from the autistic community because I didn't think about that because that is not my lived experience. And as you know, from listening to the podcast, I have a younger brother who was diagnosed. Now that I think back, it really was something that impacted him. It's not something that impacts him currently, which is so fascinating to think about. But I just really want to emphasize that because I talk a lot about learning from the autistic community and neurodivergent individuals themselves. And there's part of me too that I was like, oh, I'm a bad therapist. I didn't prep my clients in this way. But I got to say in response to that is I had this advantage of working with these adult autistic clients who share their experience. And so I get this feedback that you work with kids that are not able to give the same feedback. My caseload now of autistic clients ranges, I think, from age 7 to 58, 59, somewhere there. I'm just my autistic clients right now. The 34-year-old autistic client has more lived experience and has had the opportunity many times to make different choices around holidays and articulate, I did this other way this year and it was a better experience. And coming out of New Year's, when I heard adults talk about it, I do benefit because of who I work with and how they're able to articulate some in different ways than others. Whereas the young population, I don't think any of these folks could have articulated the same way when they were kids. And so not just lived experience of therapists, but the lived experience of autistic adults in general really is a big benefit. Totally. Such a good point. Thank you. So before we move on from masking, I have one other question related to this. I can give analogies all day long. And yes, again, like you're saying, all individuals mask in some ways, but I'd love to hear from your perspective. What is it like internally for you when you're masking? What does that feel like in your body? In many ways, it still feels normal because for me, it was almost my whole life. And the more you're able to understand your masking, it can become a tool. If I need to walk into a bank to have a transaction, I guess I go to the bank sometimes in 2023, I can put on that mask and be in there for five minutes and not have to worry as much. It can become an, an armor that you use, unfortunately. So trying to live more and more authentically, the more I do live authentically, the more the mask is uncomfortable and I don't want to do that. But there is a disconnect and the body energy and the recovery time from masking, you know, 
pushing through challenging signature experiences, you know, this idea that this person, they're not autistic. I see them eight hours a day at work. They seem fine. But what you didn't see is their two hours of slow prep because they're dreading it and the three hours just sitting in a recliner after that when they couldn't do anything after having that mask on because they're on edge all day long. And so that disconnect and how exhausting that it can be, but it's being aware of the transition to wearing that mask less and less and less. It is a powerful experience and it ranges from like behavior to physical presentation of self. I think there's so many different ways that, that people are aware of masking or not. Even the clothes people choose to wear. I'm wearing a pretty colorful shirt today. I don't know that I would have worn the same shirt when I'm going to be on a camera for anything a couple of years ago. When people start to unmask, you'll see new tattoos show up, piercings show up, ways that people and almost try to rebound like, all right, I really want to make sure y'all know I'm different than that person you once knew. That makes a lot of sense. I think too, this example of work, I talk with parents a lot about, they're like, my kid comes home from school and it's like, we're seeing all these behavioral challenges. And it's like, yeah, they're probably letting out everything they held in all day long and giving some of that downtime and planning with that transition mode to let them unmask and be able to be in a space without any demand so that they can fully process that. This is where the trauma therapist to me comes out and says, when they come home and their behavioral challenges are coming out, some of that is because they feel safe enough in this space. Mom and dad, they feel safe enough with you to let all of this come out. Why do parents get the worst behavior from their kids? Because they're the safest people for their kids to let all of it come out and just be. And so you work with parents a lot, as do I. They really struggle. Why is my kid the worst for me? Because you are the safest for your child. Don't be discouraged, even though it's really easy to be discouraged by that. It is so often it's a sign of trust and safety that you're providing for that child. I love that you brought that up. And I find that sharing that with parents, because it is actually something I say as mm-hmm. well. Yep. I don't have that super strong trauma background. I have some training in it, but I think that perspective shift for parents too, it helps them see it in a new light. And I think the other thing I say a lot of, and again, you might've heard this on the podcast before, but all behaviors are communicative. Your child is trying to communicate something with you. And rather than viewing them as something undesirable, we need to understand what is the underlying function of this? What are they trying to get across? And more likely than not, we missed some of the early cues that they were trying to communicate this in a quote-unquote less reactive, more socially acceptable way. We're missing those cues, and I think that becomes important to keep in mind, too. Yes, absolutely. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how much training in your social work degree that you got on neurodiversity or even just neurodevelopmental disorders and how much you alluded to this, but how much additional training did you have to go through to really be able to effectively and supportively work with autistic individuals? So the training in grad school on it was maybe half a lecture on all of this, right? An assessment psychopathology class, which is a class on the DSM. And it's all this deficit-based deficit view. And that's it. And what are you doing with that? That's not talked about. Sort of that's other people's domain to work with. 
And I will say I was in graduate school right as the transition between DSM four and DSM five. And so there's a time when nobody knew exactly what was what in new ways. Same. Um, it was like, which one do we teach? But we don't really know how to teach DSM five. Yeah, there was one came out, but the other one was still acceptable. So I learned the four, even though by the time I was working, the five was in play. It was a weird time. But so when I went into that private practice, and like I said, I knew I was going to work with kids, realizing I've always been someone who enjoyed kids, worked at day camps, I was a babysitter, all these kinds of things. And so literally my last day in my job at the treatment center was on a Friday, and it was 8 o'clock the next morning. So I left work 6 o'clock maybe. 8 o'clock the next morning, I was four hours away walking into the office of the former president of the Georgia Association of Play Therapy, who's at this point truly over 50 years experience, which is a phenomenal thing. And so I crashed course in her office a couple hours of what are the basics of play therapy one-on-one. So understanding stuff from there. So a lot of different play therapy training, which between that and trauma therapy, and I found this by the way, that most approaches with clients who have experienced a lot of trauma work really well with the neurodivergent folks as well. I mean, sensory awareness, because people are highly attuned to their environments. So some of that seamlessly slides right in. Yeah. I've always been someone who's given a lot of expressive approaches or options when, in my work. Even where I'm sitting now, I've got paint supplies, drawing supplies. I've got some Play-Doh over here. I've got some toys right over here. And in my office, I work with kids, adults. I don't separate doing sand tray work from, oh, that's with kids. I have done sand tray work with the 88-year-old that I referred to earlier has absolutely done some play therapy stuff years ago in my office. And so these approaches where I've said, I don't care so much if you can think of the words to express it. Let's find other ways to express things. So all that really flowed in pretty well with the neurodivergent population, especially giving options and things like that works really well. And so a little over a year ago, when I started down this path, learning all that I could about autism, I did a lot of different online trainings. Some of them were very deficit-based and, in my view, somewhat unfortunate angles. So I've truly read a lot of books. I've done a lot of workshops and picked through what I want to apply. I've worked very much from an affirming perspective. Rather than saying, this is person's a problem who needs to be fixed, I'd rather say, this person is different and let's support them in being them because the world needs them to be their most authentic self. I've looked around, you know, we talk about the graduate programs from social work. You can't find classes or certificate programs at that level on neurodiversity. Almost in general, you can't find it. There are very few out there. And so for me, it really has been this picking and choosing. And now I try to distill some of it down into short workshops to offer to other therapists to understand just what is the autism spectrum? And I've got some workshops that I offer for parents or for therapists because Honestly, therapists don't know what's the proper language. You hear language that's not clinical at all, and therapists are using this. And so I try to offer some of that where I can do some advocacy work because it is really difficult to find trainings and for therapists to stumble on that on their own. It just doesn't happen very much. So the amount that you had to go above and beyond your degree, what you needed for licensure, and I will share too, I mean, in my PhD program, I specialized in autism. So a lot of our classes didn't talk about autism, but I went to a research-based program. So all of the research I was doing was on largely early identification and early intervention work. But 
we never talked about neurodiversity. It wasn't until I left. And then really, as I transitioned back into clinical work, since I was on the research side, I definitely started hearing about neurodiversity on the research side. But then I transitioned back in and I was like, I need to do a lot of learning. It's funny you talk about language. There's still things that I know that I say incorrectly for a while, and I probably still say some things incorrectly. In some of my early podcast episodes, I think I was saying neurodiverse individual, and then it was like, oh, no, neurodivergent. Neurodiversity Mm -hmm. is about the population. Neurodivergent is about the individual. But it's a learning process, and I think resources are needed. So I remember you saying you do a lot of like workshops and things like that. And I think that's so necessary because it's hard to find this information. It's a weird space where truly social media, as much as I feel like I am just programmed to question and oh, you can't trust what's out there. But social media is a space where neurodivergent self-advocates are out there and sharing their experience. And you can learn a lot in that space. And then the neurodiversity movement, the last few years has really taken off more and more. And I think some of it is we now have autistic researchers that are setting up the research design. They're writing the books. They're vocal on social media. And that's helping to shift things. Whereas before, we didn't have a voice. There really wasn't much one. And many people, even if they identified as autistic, they weren't going to say anything because there's such a deficit perspective. And there still is very much one, I think, in society, but it's shifting for sure. It's really interesting. I mean, being a psychologist, because with the diagnostic side of things, that is deficit-based. I have to justify the deficits, but I really try to then shift to this model as we move into treatment approaches, that it is strengths-based and affirming. But it's this weird juxtaposition, I feel like sometimes in my brain that I have to balance. And I was a thousand percent trained in a deficit model. There's no question about that. And sometimes I'm still catching myself and just trying to also balance. I don't know if you find this. I'd be curious to sometimes balance some of the evidence-based approaches with then what the autistic community is saying and trying to integrate those, I sometimes feel like there's this push and pull. Do you ever personally experience that? Real quick, just a brief interruption, because I want you to know you don't have to navigate this journey alone. If you're in a place where you have concerns about your child's development, you've been on the search for a therapist that provides evidence-informed neurodivergent affirming care, or you're needing more support as a parent, the whole family approach may be a good fit for you. Autism doesn't just impact your child's life, so you deserve care that works for your child and your whole family. Head to the link in the show notes to schedule a complimentary call where we can chat about your unique circumstances. We can help you decide if Dr. Tay concierge clinical care would be a good fit for your family. And if not, we will provide you resources for your next best steps. Again, this is a benefit because my trauma background, all the clinical trials that are done out there on any medications, or most treatment approaches, they exclude most of the clients I've ever worked with as trauma clients because they have all these different experiences in their past. And so I'm already in this place of saying most of the approaches that I use, they weren't tested on any of my clients anyways. And so trying to go against some of that is already kind of part of my background. And so I look at it and go, okay, well, I was reading a journal article a couple of days ago that somebody uh, put out there, 
but it was from 2005 and they're signing something from 1997. And they're saying, this is the evidence. Going, well, wait a second. You're signing something that's 26 years old now. So is there any new evidence? Are we repeating any of this? Are we looking at it in a different way? And so I think that's a big part of it that we have to look at. When I say the last few years, I think the neurodiversity movement's really taken off. I think we're in this like weird middle ground where the self-advocates, the lived experience voices are taking off some, but there's not the publications on it yet. There's not the research that's been designed and followed through. There's no longevity to it yet. And so 10 years from now, we'll be looking back. I think this is a really pivotal time for the neurodivergent population, hopefully in a positive way. But it's a weird tension. I think we're in the middle of it right now. We're in the middle of this shift and trying to be affirming. It does, I think, put us someone on the front lines of that movement. Absolutely. Next week's episode, which when people are listening to this, it will already be published. But for you, it's a little bit of a woo-woo episode, but it's on human design. And I mentioned this because we got into this whole conversation in the episode. So 2027, there's going to be this paradigm shift, like global paradigm shift. And they're actually predicting a lot of what you're describing. And actually, they're saying these autistic characteristics will become the majority, not the minority. And so it's really fascinating to see how things are unfolding. And I do think social media can be so amazing. You have to, with everything, take it with a grain of salt. Even sometimes, I'll be honest, it's hard to put out videos where it's like, okay, I put it out there thinking it's one thing, it's perceived in a different way. And it's like, okay, some of the nuances missing with this. Unfortunately, I hope you're right that we'll start to see more research with self-advocates really leading it. And I do worry a little bit because the way the research field works is what's getting funded. But I think we're getting creative. And maybe that's the thing. It's not about what's getting funded. It's how do we start to get creative with this? And I think social media is one of those avenues where You don't need to get approval from someone to be able to show up. You just are able to show up. Or like you said, people writing books. And so I do think there will be some creativity, but it's a limitation. And it's really fascinating because, again, the way I was trained was everything had to be evidence-based. I use evidence-informed principles is what I talk about a lot with flexibility. Mm -hmm. And even my graduate training, I had to because there's not a lot published with autism. There's not a lot of evidence-based treatments targeting co-occurring things with autism. But I think even more so that, you know, kind of navigating this, I will say it's a little validating that you also feel we're kind of like stuck in this two worlds thing. Oh, and hopefully we see more shifts. Yeah, no, I really do. And even when I hear you share some of your story, the lived experience of a sibling, I don't know about the voices that are out there of the lived experience of a sibling. And there's how many different lived experiences of somebody who's just barely adjacent, part of it, but not the center of it, that those voices get missed so often. And so like social media, sure, take it with a grain of salt, we have to filter it. But absolutely, it's a place for voices to get out there. And hopefully that does start to guide the designs. I mean, academia is what it is. I have clients in academia and as they talk about some of these antiquated processes, it doesn't track for me. But also I recognize I'm a solo act. I can pivot any moment I want to. In a way, these major institutions that are part of this massive system, they are a little bit slower moving in that because their size. So I do hope that, you know, the research is able to follow. 
I wonder, you know, and truly don't know about this, but will we see any more independent research start to come about as opposed to all being in academic settings from some of these self-advocate networks? It'll be interesting to see. I think that's where the creativity is going to happen because it is hard to get academia to, to catch up. Although there are absolutely are people in academia that are fully behind this and trying to figure out ways as well. I'd love to touch on just an overview. And obviously, I know there's so much variability, but what generally are you finding, you know, feel free to talk about kids as well, but even more so on the teen and adult side, what are often some of the quote unquote presenting problems or things that people are seeking out therapy for and that you're working with them on? I see a lot of challenges around social struggles. The ability to sit through class in high school is a major challenge for a lot of people. To stay in school all day in high school, things like that. So we just start with the teens. I start everybody with a conversation about sensory experiences. Let's break down the experience of being in high school. You walk in the door. There's a crowd of people there. It's loud, bright lights, movement. You've got to navigate that. Let's just really examine these environments that are hard to be in. Let's start by talking about that and what accommodations can we discuss for that. Earplugs. I'm an air where schools will say, no, you can't have those. And so how many challenges is this present as behavioral challenges? Middle schooler walks out of class. High schooler just storms out. Are really, it's about overstimulation because there's so much sensory input that they couldn't focus. So I think... Almost all my conversations start there. And I also love talking about sensory challenges simply because many of them are concrete things to be addressed. The people love action steps. I do, right? And you can take action on looking at sensory experiences. You put earplugs. And so talking about the eight sensory systems, people don't think about interception and things like that as a major one. So, all right, well, that class you had a hard time with was right before lunch. And if you missed that you were getting hungry and suddenly you were really hungry and you had this major sensory experience sitting there that nobody talked about hunger as a sensory experience. What I'll run into people, whether they're diagnosed in the last six months and they're 17 years old or diagnosed when they're younger, I think, again, this whole movement we've got going on and what professionals were trained in what they may have experienced in a lot of different therapies, but these weren't conversations that they had. And so some of it really is going back to the basics with that of let's just examine your environment. So let's talk about that. That translates well into adults as well. And I think that's part of why we have so many adults right now identifying as autistic is I've been the pandemic. People went home and they set up their own work environments and they realized I don't work in bright lights anymore. I work with a lamp on and that's all. Or I've got my blinds open and a lamp on and I've got a white noise machine, even though I'm in my home alone because I don't want to hear the mail truck. And wait a second, I have all these sensory challenges that I had to mask before as I was going to work to try to be like the American worker. And you have people who started exploring that. So I think that's a big part of the adult identification right now as well is the result of the pandemic and people exploring themselves and their experiences and getting to accommodate for the first time in their life. We have people in their 30s, 40s, 50s for the first time in their life accommodating challenges that they didn't even realize they had. And they read about it and connect with others about that. With teens or adults, what are their environments? You know, then specific challenges. If it's social, again, sometimes this takes you right back to century stuff. Century challenges, 
you connect with people because you are sitting there trying to force this through the overstimulation or the way you're trying to figure out how to respond because you're masking and you're like going through this file of weighty responses from TV shows and movies that you've seen or books that you've read. And then you miss the moment. So where I am, let me give you context. I'm just north of Atlanta and I'm just on the edge of the suburbs. In the town I live in, I'm on the south side of the town and it feels like suburbs. I got a sister who lives on the north side of town and it feels like a small town, but I'm on the edge. So I have clients who go to Metro Atlanta type high schools with big autistic populations, a lot of support. And I have clients who they're the first person to ever have an IEP meeting with a school where they're in an honors class wow. and the parent pushes back when the school says, oh, well, we just moved from honors back down to a different level of class instead of let's talk about accommodations to be at the academic level that, that they should be in. There's this whole wide range of like, all right, let's talk about this sensory experience that may be challenging in that, you know, the social environment, whereas other kids I work with, they're in chess club with 20 other autistic kids. And there's high school four miles from my office that's got this amazing like robotics club that's full of and like computer programming there, all these things that draw in a big neurodivergent crowd. Adults, we talk about social activities that if you unmask, what do you want to do? Instead of trying to force yourself to go to these traditional activities, what would you rather do? And can we connect socially in those environments that are more accommodating? Maybe a coffee shop is a better fit for you than a bar. That makes sense. I love the perspective and the, the centeredness around sensory makes so, so much sense. And it's also the thing that I think about it too is the way in which you do it. It sounds very intrinsically validating where people are able to be themselves, but they feel seen and heard because someone is finally asking about these things and really trying to understand what's going on versus I know you and I had a conversation before, but the middle schooler who storms out of class, it's like, oh, well, he's just defiant. And it's like, no, mm -hmm. he's overstimulated and dysregulated. And of course, this environment isn't setting him up for success. The other thing that I just want to emphasize there just for parents is this idea of, well, we'll just bump your kid down to a less academically challenging class. That should always be a red flag of being like, wait a minute, if all of a sudden they're being told they need to bump down, that is a sign that accommodations are needed. When exploring that as the route before bumping down, or the other thing is holding a kid back too. I just talked with a parent recently and it's like, yeah, they held my kid back twice. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And the child is autistic. I've seen this like, high schooler, high A, one of the higher grades of the class in an honors level class from top levels in school. And the school is offering to bump down as the accommodation rather than the kid has a hard time staying in class, things like that already. Yeah, still has this high grade. And so in no way does that track as the reasonable accommodation. It doesn't make any sense. It's just like, that's the approach. But again, this is the first time and for a lot of schools in the area that a parent has pushed back to say, wait a second, that's not where my child belongs. This class is where my child belongs. I want my child to stay there. Let's accommodate their needs. Oh, I feel like I'm learning so much from you. I love this. And I know we need to start to wrap up this episode. I did have one question that came to mind is for parents that have autistic children right now, what would you say are some 
given you see the lifespan, that as they age, maybe some transition points to be more attentive to, or things that historically you found patterns that are more challenging. So parents know what to expect and what to monitor for. I will say the hardest transition that I see in the aging process through schools of all children I've ever worked with is when they go from fifth grade to sixth grade, when they go from elementary school to middle school. And in some ways, I think that has gotten even harder from the pandemic because there's so much communication that goes to parents electronically now. Weekly updates, calendars, here's everything's happening. My kids are elementary ages and I get emails from schools summertime and I'm still getting some updates on things that disappears in sixth grade. So just that parent's ability to track what's going on. And that's one I think for IEP purposes and things like that to be aware of, that may be walking in asking for other kind of communication other than tell my kid the assignment and the due date and hope that I can help support them through it. But middle schools tend to be bigger. A lot of times you have these feeder elementary schools that go into these bigger schools. Fifth grader, you're the biggest kid in the school. Middle school, you're the smallest kid. So there's so many different transitions. Yeah. Socially, it's just different. So that's it's the hard. one. Anytime that I've been in private practice, at the start of the school year, I get more calls from parents of sixth graders who just got a middle school than any other age. So that's what I just tell everybody, watch out for that one, be ready. So right now, all the rising sixth graders that I'm working with, we've been talking about this for a month already. Of Let's talk a little bit about middle school. Let's talk about this with the parents, with the child. Even the move from middle school to high school at that point doesn't seem to be nearly as difficult. They go back to being the smallest kids again. There's a little bit of challenge in that, but they already have gotten used to mom and dad not knowing all their assignment due dates and everything going on. They've got three years of taking that on. That's a major one. I tell everybody to watch out for that one. Frequently see hormone changes, puberty medications. Suddenly, sometimes go, I don't know if this working is right. And I get these questions. You might want to talk to the prescribing provider. But you're seeing this hormonal changes, especially in the world as there's so much telehealth. The provider that's doing this telehealth visit to renew that prescription, they may not be picking up on that. You need to communicate these differences you're seeing. And that's also happening in that middle school age range as well. But somewhere in there, if a medication that seems like it's working, communicate that. Tell the prescribing provider all this information as well. So yeah. I do see that one. And that's what it shifts, not just like, oh, there's this one change at the start of puberty, but it's ongoing. Right. And for some people may go into early adulthood, ongoing challenges and changes with that. I taught a, a young adult recently who's exploring changing the medication, the processing, all their supports. Should they try this? Realizing that in their late twenties, they've been on the same medication since they were in their late teens and they're a different person today and their body's not changing the same way. And so that's also all these body and life changes being aware there's so many factors that play into it. That, yeah. I guess that's my social work perspective, the biopsychosocial perspective. Totally. All yeah. of that, I think, is really important to watch. I also think with puberty, too, the other aspect, like medication, that makes so much sense, is, to the sensory experience. I mean, puberty is hard for, I would say, the majority of children. There's some struggle. Weird things are happening to your body. You're having new sensations. Your hormones are fluctuating. Things that didn't previously overstimulate you might start overstimulating you now. So also don't be surprised, even on the behavioral side, that if you start to see changes, and it's not necessarily that your child, your teen, preteen, is getting worse, quote unquote. It could just be that they need 
different support or also a space to be able to talk about some of this and what they're experiencing so it doesn't feel like they're going through it alone. It's not always as comfortable, but I'll at least like mention it to a mom. But we don't talk enough, and I don't think, about the sensory experience of a period for women. For, for people that have a period, that doesn't get talked about. And I've had adult women who that's come up in a session and it's never been considered as a sensory experience. And they've been people who have been identified for years. It's not talked about as much, but I think that is a really big one. So to watch that as well during that time, that I think that's a really big issue. Totally. Okay. Before we wrap up, I have one more question that I was wondering about your personal experience. Looking back in your childhood, your preteen ages, your teenager age range, and then going to young adulthood, can you look back and like see different experiences or interpret things in different ways now that you do understand yourself better? Yes. I mean, I can look back at how I handled some of my birthday parties as a child when I had meltdowns. Makes a little bit more sense now. I have also this really weird thing that, that's a really benefit for me, but it's unique, is that when I was about six years old, my parents had me evaluated because I'm young for my grades. I'm figuring out, should they send me on? Should they hold me back a year? So I've got a brief psychological report on myself when I was about age six. I was diagnosed ADHD at Learning Disorder Center at University of Georgia when I was 19. So I've got a report from that age. And so I've got these snapshots from about every third you know, quadrant of my life at this point that does disgust me in some clinical terms. And so even that, I can see it look back, you know, the common autistic experience of they seem so mature of their age, and then suddenly they seem so immature of their age. And that's the ones who seem so mature of their age often are not diagnosed young because they're reading well, they're dialoguing, and it's some of those sides are more easily missed. And so I can track from these reports as well these signs in my life. So not just my memories, but also that is a weird, unique thing. And I've had some conversations with some of my friends when I was young, including a couple weeks ago with my best friend who, in his words to me, like, clearly you and I are a lot alike. That's why we've been friends for so long. As he's processing a little yeah. bit, realizing his best friend is autistic. So what does that mean? But we're dialoguing about some of that, some of those moments when we were adolescents, part of why he and I probably got into big fights a couple of times because we were just dysregulated by something going on, our environments. It's really interesting to look back and process. And I will say again, with late identified adults, a very common process of people just like something comes up. The first time they go through like a holiday for the first time is they recognize and all these life experiences and they go, wait a second, I don't even like family vacations. I don't like that. I've done this. I've always, why? And all these questions that people have, it makes perfect sense to me as they process back through. What did your family, like your family you grow up with, or even your family now, what did they think of this? I put out a reel on this recently. I only intentionally told a couple people before. I just let it be out there in the world. And so on a phone call with my parents, I didn't realize my dad had the phone on speakerphone, actually. So I told my dad and my mom was listening. Like, oh, no. wouldn't like try and like tell her yet. I would have, but it just kind of like, I thought I was telling him. And my dad is pretty kind of a curious person. So his response was, well, do you think I'm autistic? And I said, I don't know. You figure that out. He's also a clinical social worker, I should add. So oh, he's in this little bit in this world too. And I don't know that I intentionally told anybody else in my family, wife and kids know. And my kids are elementary age, but I still, when we talk about neurodiversity and somehow they can pronounce the word because we say it enough. I told a couple friends intentionally and then... 
for me, the next time I intentionally said anything publicly, I presented at a conference of people in the education world, and I was scared to death. That was the most afraid I ever was. I was in front of a group, maybe 20 people. I bet. And afterward, Taylor, I had somebody come up and say, thank you for giving us a voice. And a few weeks later, I presented to another group, and I got the same response. And that's so much I mean, how I ended up on here with you today and on social media and everything. So much of what I'm doing has come from every time I share my experience, I get that reaction from somebody. I had somebody wait. I presented for an hour and a half. 30 minutes afterwards, I people asked me questions, and somebody waited to the very end just to say that. That's a big motivator for me and a big driver for me. And so even in the space where we go, well, are there risks in identifying as autistic? In healthcare, there's some questions about it, and we've seen some discrimination still. But in my space as a social worker, and our historical roots as social workers of being leaders in, in advocacy work, things like that, I look at this trade-off, and if somebody feels like they were given a voice, it's worth it to me to be open about it. Totally. Oh, I love that. And that was such a perfect ending. Where can people connect with you? I'd love to link some of your information in the show notes. Yeah, the best thing, best way to, to connect with me is Sam Aaron Counseling or Ask Sam Aaron Counseling on Instagram. I'm there. I do a few workshops for a little there. I try to put out a little bit of content. I'm in Georgia and I can't practice outside of the state of Georgia. So if anybody hears this in Georgia, if you want to reach out, we can have a conversation about that. But other than that, Instagram is really where I am. I do monthly workshops the third Thursday of the month are sort of geared towards parents. Got one coming up in July on what is the autism spectrum from a neurodiversity affirming perspective. Got That's one in. Perfect. We'll have to link yeah, that. Yeah. August one on sensory experiences, neurodivergent sensory experiences coming up as well. And then oh, understanding okay. neurodivergence for therapists, continuing event coming up later in July as well. So did a little bit of that. Uh, I just had fun with it, to be honest with you. I love that. We'll definitely link that. So reach out to Sam, connect with him. I know he likes to, of course, no clinical advice, but he loves to chat in DMs too. And that's how we've gone back and forth. So it's been so fun just getting to know you. And it's interesting getting to know someone's Instagram profile. I knew a little bit, but today I just thank you so much for sharing so openly and educating and also talking about your lived experiences. I definitely am personally walking away from this episode feeling like I learned a lot and just feel so grateful that you were willing to do this with me. Well, I appreciate you having me. I've had a good time. Good, good. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap, y'all, for today's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. We will see y'all soon. Before we wrap up this episode, for real this time, I want to share a couple ways you can get even more value and what your next steps could be. First, join the Evolve Facebook group. We do Q&As about the episodes and so much more. I linked that group, my personal social media pages, and any resources I mentioned in this episode in the show notes. So scroll down now and join me online. When you submit questions on any of my pages, your question could be featured on this podcast. How cool is that? I love being able to speak on topics that feel directly relevant to your life. Your questions truly make a difference in the content we create here. One last thing, do your fellow autism parents a favor. Share this episode on your social media and tag me. Autism currently affects one in 36 families in the United States and many more worldwide. So I'm sure there is a parent in your social media followers that could be served by this podcast. Thank you again for being here, and I'm so grateful we shared this time together. Bye, y'all.